So far, in our behind-the-scenes look of the Advent, we've been coming together on Sunday mornings preparing to celebrate Christmas, or the, the first birth, the Noel, the Navidad in Spanish. Noel is still contemporary French, but it is derived from that Latin word. I love looking at the origins of those things and what it is that we're actually celebrating. Christmas is not a time where we are empty mind or with, without any thought or with, without any real conviction, simply getting focused on what Christ has given us or what the church is supposed to mean. But it is filled with tremendous joy as we look at what the Advent actually represents to all of humanity. The ushering in of truth into this world. In our series this year, we have been look, trying to look at what does it mean to pull back the veil, to peek behind the curtain, to move beyond the proscenium, and to say, what does it mean that Christ came into this world to dwell in the flesh? What does the gospel have to say as it's being rooted in the advent of Christ? So far in our behind-the-scenes look, we've looked at the coming of Christ and ultimately this Christmas story. We've seen Jesus as he was in eternity. Not as someone who was born at a particular point in time, but as God who existed before all things. That he existed in co-eternal nature with the Father before everything. And in fact, existing as the former of all things that have come to exist. He formed all things that have come to exist. Last week, we saw Christ declared and proclaimed by the prophet John the Baptist as the source of life. John, when writing about John the Baptist, says that John was a light. He was one who was sent from God. And while he was a light, he was not the light. He came to testify about the true light. He proclaimed Christ as the source of life, the source of vitality that is needed in the resurgence and the regeneration and the revival of his church today as much as it was needed in the first century in the revival of his people in Israel. This week, the last week before we get to come together, and I'm so excited about this, on Sunday we get to come together and celebrate on Christmas Day as a church. The last week before we're able to conclude this survey of John's prologue, we are able to celebrate the actual fulfillment of God's glory. This week, we look at Christ beyond eternal, beyond life-giving, as the source of truth itself. Our text will begin in verse 9, which is where we left off last week, and we'll read all the way through verse 13. I'd invite you then to open your Bibles to read along with me and keep them open as we study this word that it would bear testimony as we understand what God has given us, his word. Father in heaven, we praise you for this morning, for the time that we have to gather together. Lord, we seek you and your wisdom, asking that you would give us insight into the meaning of your testimony about yourself. God, I pray that as we read, our hearts would be receptive, that we would understand that we would be molded into an image that glorifies you. Father, I pray that everything this morning would glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray and ask all of these things. Amen. The Bible says, 
the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will or the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Four themes I want to look at this morning in our text. I want to talk about the light. I want to talk about the world, and I want to talk about the reception of Jesus Christ, ultimately leading us to the fourth word, the theme, everything that Christ advent into this world means for us today, the life that is offered for him. So that is the light, the world, the reception, and the life. Our text begins, the true life. The true light, these first three words, hentophos to elethenon in Greek, distinguish Christ from John the Baptist who existed before him. We saw John the Baptist proclaiming truth, and indeed, John the Baptist was a light. But he was not the light. Here is the true light, the adverb elethenon in Greek, means true, real, complete, whole. This is the real light that has come into the world. As we look at Christ being not just another light in the world, we see him as the truth. And the issue of truth, loved ones, this morning as we consider what truth means, this is something that's difficult for us to contemplate or even wrap our heads around because we live in a world that teaches us. Modern education systems teach us that truth is a relative word. In fact, that each person can have their own unique and distinct truth as long as it is their truth and that their truth should be respected by all. I don't think these people are totally crazy. I think there is some truth to that. Everyone experiences things from their own perspective. Everyone is living their own life. We're individuals. We're not some macro conglomerate organism. We're individuals experiencing life alongside one another. Even in the church, this is a testimony that we live in community with one another. But is truth so relative to the point that there is not anything that we can call absolutely true? No. When we boil down what truth is, we must confess that there is an absolute. John the Baptist declared some truth. Indeed, Mary declared some truth in her testimony of being one of the faithful remnant. Joseph, one of the faithful remnant within Israel. His parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Indeed, this morning... There are individuals in this church that demonstrate and radiate some truth. But Christ is different. He's the truth. We see people drawing towards light as a source of illumination and a source of understanding. And we would say that there are so many different ideas in our world today that there are many lights that people could gravitate towards. But all these are flickering lights. They're fading. They are not sufficient. They are not the true light that is represented to us by Christ. Christ is not just another light. He's the true light. We get that from what 
the Bible says and teaches about him, that he is genuine, that he is pure. In contrast, then, other lights are flickering, fading, minuscule examples of the light that is to be represented to us by Jesus Christ himself as the ultimate revelation of God to all of humanity about the testimony of God's nature. Truth is not a relative object that dangles before us, but it is absolute. It can be pursued, and we can come closer and draw nearer to it. Christ is the truth because he defines existence. Consider this. The next part of our text is going to say that he came into the world and the world was made through him. Colossians testifies to the fact that Christ is the one who holds all things together. Jesus Christ, God, defines what truth is because it is from him that all things exist. If we have read previously that it is truth that we find in Christ, then it is in him that we find life, that he has created all that exists in our world, and that all things that exist beyond our world are because of him. That he is in fact the originator of all things because he did not ever originate or begin to exist. We must also confess that Christ is what not only defines truth, but defines all of humanity's existence. Whether you reject Christ, whether you receive Christ, all life is defined by Jesus Christ. All truth in this world radiates centrifugally from God himself. We're told the light which gives light to everyone, to all humanity, now, the, the tense in our text gives the idea that when Christ came into the world, there was not some instantaneous flickering or light coming on, but rather this was something that was progressive. Much like the entire account of the Bible, as God interacts with humanity, namely his chosen people throughout history, his revelation to us is progressive, complete. In our day, we're able to look back with confidence and say that the revelation that Christ has given to us is complete in all things. There is light inside of men that comes from God. There's light inside of each of us that comes from God that testifies about him. Genesis testifies to the creation of man. The book of Genesis says that all men were created in the image of God. God created man and woman in his image. Our doctrinal statement that we ascribe to at Denver Street Baptist Church records in reflection of this that because all men and women are created equally in God's image, all men and women are owed dignity. Because it is the light of God that is inside of their creation. Each person, no matter what, is worthy of dignity and respect because they have been created in the image of God. This light that is in God is perfect inside of us. It isn't. God's given us great 
insight in the way that he has created us, that humanity longs to understand who God is, to understand what this Noel is as a measure of love and grace given to the entire world. But we struggle. We struggle. When we look to the true light, it is blinding in its brilliance. It exposes every ounce of sin, every ounce of fallenness, every ounce of falseness. What we find more often is that people do not genuinely want the true light is before us. Rather, we would take a flickering version of it. I walked into the nursery this morning. You guys are familiar with the type of lights that are in the nursery until our remodel's complete. Those lights have to warm up. I feel like I'm going to have a seizure the moment I walk in there if those lights come on because they flicker. This is the kind of light that exists inside of men. It's not complete. It's not perfect. It's not the true light. It's not the alethmanon light. It's simply a glimpse. My wife, when she does her makeup, she has a a mirror with different colored lights. I don't understand what the different colors are. Someone will have to explain it to me sometime. But there's green and pink and yellow. I like the yellow one. It makes me look like I have jaundice. So that's what I use because then I know as long as I don't look that bad leaving the house, I can be somewhat confident, right? Why does it matter what kind of light she uses as she gets ready in the morning? She wants to make sure that there's nothing hiding in the shadow, that there's nothing hiding in the darkness. She wants to be sure. When the light of God shines upon humanity, our human nature is broken and humbled as we look at the absolute depravity that is there. I've shared with you guys something that has been somewhat compelling for me. Every two years, Ligonier Ministries, uh, in conjunction with Lifeway Research, publishes a survey that they conduct among Christians and non-Christians. And essentially, they distinguish between evangelicals and non-evangelicals. And they ask questions related to theology, and they published this in a report called The State of Theology. 2022 is one of those every two years, and so a new State of Theology has come out this year. It's the worst one I've seen yet. Not because of what the world is saying, not because of what people who are outside of the church are reflecting on who God is, but because of what people who identify as evangelical Christians are saying about God. Does God learn and adapt to every situation? This is a question of whether or not you believe that God is perfect. If he's perfect, he has no need to change. But if you say that he's not perfect, if you've made God small, when asked, do you believe that God learns and adapts to circumstances? You'll say, yeah, of course he does. Isn't learning and adapting a good thing? If you say yes to that, you are saying that you are like God. I agree to learn and adapt is virtuous for humanity because we're not perfect. If you're perfect, change nothing. 
God does not change. The Bible clearly tells us that God does not change. I was interested in the survey because it reflects a change in thinking among Christians. But as a pastor, I'm not the pastor of the United States of America, and so this survey does not help me very much. I'm interested in what the state of theology would look like inside of Greenwood, Arkansas, and so I took to the streets and conducted my own survey with the same questions. It was worse than the United States. 85% of people in the neighborhood surrounding our church who identify as evangelical Christians said that God changes. Now, where does this relate to the truth? Another question that I asked, if you think 85% of people agreeing is bad, wait for this. If light exposes wickedness, What does it do in the way that we regard the way all humanity is created? Agree or disagree? All children, all people are created basically innocent in the eyes of God. Ninety-eight percent of people identifying as evangelical Christians, said that we are born innocent. Do you believe that we're born innocent? I really want to believe that. What can be more pure? What can be more innocent? What could be more safe? from the consequences of being depraved than a fresh little baby. They haven't even had time to make a mistake. How could they not be born innocent? Let me tell you why it matters. The issue of whether a person is righteous or not is nullified by the fact that all of humanity stands condemned. We have inherited the sinfulness of our parents. We are born depraved. We are born into bondage. This week, I was Friday, I left a visit with a friend in, in Cave Springs, another pastor. And that morning as I was leaving, Michelle was sitting on the couch and she was, she's not here, so I'll tell you guys this story. She looked off. The kids were watching TV because it was morning time, and that's what you do in the mornings. She's sitting on the couch, and she just seemed off. What's wrong? I don't want to tell you. You'll make fun of me. And thinking, you know, it was something silly, like the Goofy movie was on, and maybe she felt like she treated her mom the way Max treats Goofy, and it was sad, and she felt bad about it. No, she really was sad. I was doing my Bible study this morning and I realized just how bad sin is. I would never make fun of somebody who said that. 
I constantly need to be reawakened and, and brought to the awareness of how bad sin actually is. Because my human nature naturally wants to run away from the brilliance of the true light that's come into the world and instead say, it's not all that bad, at least I repent every once in a while. Sin is at the core of the gospel proclamation of declaring what is the good news? What does it mean that we celebrate Christ coming to this world? Why would such an awful message that condemns us, that brings people to tears, why would that, why would that be called good news? Because the true light that comes into the world, when it shines on our awareness of how fallen, how low sin takes us, it also illuminates for us the heights of God's grace that he would come into this world to save people who are so depraved and so fallen. It's a parallel street. The more you understand sin and how bad it is, the more you will also understand God's love and how magnanimous it is, how abundant it is. It will move you to tears and in the next moment make you sing songs of joy as you remember what God has done. Verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. As we look at John's prologue, what begins to happen is John is zooming in. We've started way back in eternity before anything ever was. God existed. And then he moves in. He says, there was a light. And he zooms in now and he says the light not only was coming into the world, but the light was in the world. He was in the world, but the world did not know him. The tense in English here is deceptive. The light of Christ has not passed into this world for a moment and then evaporated or departed in some way, but is set presently radiating among us. This light exists in all of creation as it testifies who its creator is. The creation question naturally points all people towards God. I think in modern times, we've gotten away from that. Maybe people have figured out that they're smarter than they actually are, or at least they think they are. Well, this is part of deceiving ourselves in the beginning. This is part of putting a lampshade on a light. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but if you have a lamp in your home, no one takes the lampshade off. It would be too much. You need a shade. You need the light to evaporate into the corners. We can't handle the true light unless we're actually willing to recognize everything that it reveals. Here's the world. This is everything that God created, the cosmos. Everything that exists. It was all made through him. It bears the mark of its maker. Christ came into the world. He exists in the world. This light is shining if only we would look at it. When we ask the question, how is it that creation happened, there's many different ideas that we could come up with, and regardless of what you believe this morning, even in the church there's different ideas, and that's okay. We come back to this, at some point something made all of this begin.
regardless of what you believe about how things came to be, it will eventually boil down to one thing that must have existed before anything, and that thing is eternal. At this point, the rejection of God is simply an intellectually dishonest assertion. I would contend Anyone who contemplates creation and rejects the existence of God is being intellectually dishonest with themselves. As we prepare this week, I'm sure many of you are getting ready to go spend time with your loved ones and your family members. One of the greatest parts of our family gatherings is the fact that disputes and discourse will happen. At least in my family. We don't all get along. My family likes to argue too much. And I love all of them for it. Something that happens whenever people argue is it tends to push people who are on opposing sides or opposing views further away from each other. It polarizes people. Even somebody who's reasonably moderate on a particular issue, maybe hasn't even made up their mind, if they argue or debate or have a conversation with somebody who's moderate in a different direction, those two people will leave that conversation with more diverse disagreement. They will push each other away. Our pursuit of truth must be intellectually honest. If we believe that there is an absolute truth, we must be willing to be intellectually honest with ourselves. And rather than saying, just because I disagree with someone, I need to defend my side harder. We must be intellectually honest enough to say, maybe I need to listen to this side more thoroughly. This is the problem that faces people who ask the question of how creation came to be. How could it be what verse 10 in our text says, that everything in the world was made through him? What alternative is there? The people who reject God after considering creation, this is intellectual dishonesty because it's not saying that I'm compelled by the evidence. It isn't saying that I'm moved by the truth or the assertions of the truth. It's saying I've reached the point where I refuse to even acknowledge that you have more merit in your argument than I do. We can contrast light and darkness, truth and fraud, and we can see the world and contrast it with these eternal things that God is showing us. As John moves on in verse 10, the use of the word world changes. No longer is he just talking about everything that God has created, but then he says, yet the world did not know him. The world representing not just the cosmos, but the anthropon, the humanity, the people. He's looking at what it means that people would be rejecting him. We see these back and forth in John's writing, light and darkness, truth and fraud. The world and eternity. Rejection and reception. At verse 11, John's going to zoom in again. No longer just that he came to the world, that all men receive a part of this light, but that he came to his own. Jesus, when he was born, did not come into the world randomly. 
He came to the Jewish people. He came to the people that he had made covenants with, that he had made covenants in the time of Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. The nation that he had established providentially to glorify him, the nation that he had brought up and made promises that he would preserve them and glorify them, that they would be numerous, that through Abraham, all the people of the earth would be blessed. It was not happenstance or accidents that Jesus was born a Jew. It was intentional. These people were prepared. They were supposed to be ready to receive him. They were given the light. All of the world lived in much darkness, much deception, understanding that they were created with the purpose, understanding even that there was a creator, trying to understand this creator on their own. We find many world religions that do not reflect the true light. Israel was given something more pure, something more holy. They were given the word of God. They were given prophets. Before that, they were given judges. They were given kings. They were called out and they were separated. Yet, his own did not know him. Jesus came not where he wouldn't belong, but he came where he would belong. He came to a people who were prepared for his arrival that they should have welcomed him, but they rejected him. As you read the story of the Advent, and you read the story of Jesus' life, and indeed there is a great biblical drama that is unfurled in the pages of Scripture, it is easy for us to villainize these people who rejected Christ. It's easy for us to look at the Pharisees and to say that they're legalistic, that they stand against God, that they didn't really want to glorify God, that they wanted to glorify themselves. But consider this. These people were zealous for glorifying God to the point that they made sure that they were living things. They detested things that dishonored God. They were incredibly obedient. They cared more than most contemporary Christians that God would be glorified in all that they do. Soli Dea Gloria, that God would be glorified alone. The people of Israel were his chosen nation and they were able to enjoy coming back to Israel. There was, in addition to the Pharisees, a group of people called the Zealots. We talk about having zeal, that's a good thing. The Zealots maybe went the other direction. They were Jewish nationalists. They wanted to overcome the Roman authorities that were over them, that they could be the Jewish nation again, returning from Babylon and their bondage in Persia, and that they would also be freed from the Roman authorities that were over them. And they were willing to go to war for their people. This problem of sin, this problem of living in darkness is a problem for all of humanity. We don't want the truth. 
We don't want to live in the truth. We don't want to acknowledge how fallen we have become. We don't want to receive the gift that God is giving us in the ultimate revelation of Christ. We want to turn away with it. And it's even possible that you, like the nation of Israel, like like the Pharisees who were zealous for glorifying God, have come to a place of knowing God that want to serve Him. And now as you live your life, as you mature in your faith, you want to stop because it's become painful. The love of God is bigger than your pain. If you will lean in to receiving Christ, the reception of Him, this is the promise made by God's Word through the testimony of John recorded in his prologue, verse 12, but to all who did receive Him. What does it say happens? He gave the right to become children of God. To all who receive Him, we reject Christ when we villainize the nation of Israel, when we villainize the Jews who rejected Him, because we reject the truth that that is not a picture of people far off from us, but that is a picture of us today. Those who should know Him, who should be prepared, who should be ready, reject Him because they do not truly want the full light. We're satisfied with our glimpse of flickering lights. Perhaps we should pray for spiritual nystigma so you can all be off-put by the nursery light bulb as much as I am. That was a bad metaphor. Some of you thought it was funny. I appreciate your laughs. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, this isn't just saying that we would believe that Jesus existed and that he was real, but to believe in somebody's name, this means to believe in their character, to believe in what they said about themselves. You're familiar with this. I've given you my word. Is my name good enough for you? I hope that it is. This is what it means to believe in Jesus' name. That I believe that His word is good enough, that it's sufficient, that it's real, that He has not deceived me, that He is the true light that provides life to man. Look at this. To all who receive Him, who believe in His name, He gives the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This mystery Hopefully, you're already thinking about the encounter that Jesus has with Nicodemus in the middle of the night when he says, to be born of the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus asks, how is it possible that I should be born again? Should I crawl back into my mother's womb that she may deliver me again? That's silly. And all the moms said, no. How is it possible to be born again? Receive Him, we believe Him, and then we experience life. Rachel, I'm glad that you mentioned the the origins of the word Noel. The beginning of life. Arche Zoe, the beginning of birth, the beginning of existence, the beginning of all of these things that would come. 
to believe in Christ's names, to believe in more than his existence, to believe what he says about himself, to receive the light that exposes darkness inside of us. The result is life. It's to come to him, to know him, to experience the vitality that he has promised us. Not born of blood. Look at this. It's familial. It's like a small family. Our relationship's not of blood. It's not even of will. It's not even a commitment that I've made. It is intrinsic into the one that has provided me life. This, again, is God who is in everything, who defines existence because he creates it. My life makes me a part of the children of God. It makes me a brother. It makes you a sister. It brings you into the family of God because it is of God. Our community, our setting aside for one another, what we've been made, this promise of life is in all that he is. What does it mean to pursue truth? What does it mean? How do we protect ourselves from polarizing ourselves in all these conversations that we're going to have? Can I offer you one piece of advice? You are not the light. You are flickering. You are fading. You are a minuscule testimony of the greatness and magnitude of God. Your light has all of the potential to shine brighter and brighter the closer that you draw to him. The more that he sanctifies you, the more whole you are made, the more you are obedient to God's word, the more that you glorify him and are intentional in your daily and hourly and minutely worshiping him. But that also requires that you admit that you're not perfect. Be committed to drawing towards the truth because the truth exists. Recognize failings. Humbly pursue correction. Praise be to God that the half-brother of Jesus wrote that God has promised that if you ask for wisdom, He will give it to you. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your advent. Lord, I look forward to the advent to come. God, I pray that you would, as a church, guide us into being a reflection of your true light, that our light may not be hidden under a bushel, but that it might shine, that it might radiate in our community, that people would know the love of our Father who is in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray.